Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. The apostle writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a good one. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you as we dive deep, deeper into this, uh, this complicated and powerful text of Scripture to imagine with, with me what it must have been like to live as a Christian in ancient Rome in the city of Colossae. Imagine with me for a moment the kinds of questions that they would have been asking themselves when they heard the gospel, what they would have been, what would have been inviting to them, what would have been exciting and refreshing about this new teaching, this good news. We know from the way Paul writes this letter that he's writing to a community of Gentiles. A community of Gentiles in Colossae who have been converted to Christianity from paganism. Paul writes powerfully about how the gospel of Jesus Christ offers a truer word than Caesar's imperial propaganda, a truer word than the ever-growing, ever-inclusive pantheon of Roman pagan worship, a truer word than the philosophical systems of the day. The Colossians have grown up all their lives believing lies about who they are, about who God is, about the world that God made. They've grown up with a particular rhythm of life, with religious festivals, with celebrations. Sunday was just another day of the week. They have their foods that they eat, meat sacrificed in the temples, wine poured out in libation to the gods. But then Epaphras, a man from Colossae, returns from a business trip to Ephesus one day, and their whole world changes. Epaphras tells his friends, his family, his business partners, anyone who will listen about this new teaching, 
This good news that he has heard in his travels through Asia Minor from the Apostle Paul. There is one true God who made the heavens and the earth, and he made the whole world good. We are not a mistake. We are not a, a, a byproduct that annoys the gods. Even when God's creation rebelled against him and fell into sin, God did not abandon the people he had made to sin and death, but put in place a cosmic plan of redemption. Choosing the people of Israel to be a light to the nations, giving them the law so they may live in ways that witness God's faithfulness and holiness, giving them a king who would rule over them with justice and mercy, all to prepare people, to point people to the coming Messiah in whom all these things would be fulfilled, Jesus of Nazareth. In the person of Jesus, the creator God entered into his creation as a human person, the heir of David and rightful king over Israel and all the earth. He lived a life of complete obedience to the law, and on the cross he took on himself, bore in his own flesh all the violence and fury that sin had unleashed on the world and defeated it, taking it to the grave with him and securing our forgiveness of sin. And in his resurrection, he defeated sin, defeated death, showing once and for all that God is stronger than the penalties of sin, stronger than even death itself. And now this same Jesus has ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand in his rightful place as ruler over all creation, from where he sends his Holy Spirit to guide his people in righteousness until he comes again to judge the living and the dead and rule over his kingdom on earth. This good news changed the lives of the believers in Colossae. It was like a veil lifted from their eyes. The murky, gray, complicated world of paganism was illuminated by the light of the kingdom of the Son of God. The moral ambiguity that they had lived in all their lives, never knowing what would please their ever-changing list of capricious gods and unpredictable emperors was replaced by devotion, singular devotion to the Son of God. The big questions that they had been trying to answer, who, who am I, what is wrong with the world, how can we make it better, had all been answered. I am a child of God. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I am corrupted by sin, but God has forgiven my sin in Christ and given me his spirit to live a life of holiness and prepare me for life in the new creation. I am a forgiven sinner claimed by God. And this is exciting for the Colossian Christians. It's exciting, and at first, they are enthusiastic about their faith, totally devoted, single-minded in their love and obedience to God. They change the way they live, gathering together for daily table fellowship and prayer to meditate on the scriptures, no longer participating in the pagan festivals that punctuate the year, caring for the poor in their fellowship, eating together at the same table. It's a radical change that totally 
disrupts their old way of life. But very quickly, as the initial excitement of their conversion fades, they start to see that they're not all agreeing on what it means to live a life of obedience to God. The world is still gray, still complicated. The very real, messy relationships of life in the real world are still there. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, patrons and clients, and every one of them still lives under the rule and authority of the Roman emperor whose face and image is everywhere in their lives, on their gates, on their money, on their market stalls, on the doors of their houses. And these new Christians are trying to figure out how do we live as God's holy people? They look at the Jewish neighborhood in Colossae, and they're kind of jealous because it seems like the Jews have it all figured out. Things seem so clear to them what is holy and what is not. Clear dietary restrictions, clear laws governing the purity of both body and soul, clear observance of the Sabbath day, clear seasons of fasting, clear religious festivals and celebrations that set them apart from the pagan Roman world. And this was an, a major appeal of Judaism throughout the ancient world. The, the, the clear piety, the clear holiness, the clear countercultural way that they lived. Piety, holiness, spirituality, obedience. But the Jews living in Colossae consider these new Christians to be heretics, fanatical followers of yet another false and failed Messiah. And this puts the new Christians in a difficult spot in the ancient world. Rejected by the Jews, their spiritual ancestors, so to speak, as heretics, teaching a false narrative of God and his people. And rejected by the rest of the pagan Roman world as seditious, as undermining the authority of the empire proclaiming a Lord other than Caesar, proclaiming an exclusive worship of only one true God that does violence to the traditions of their ancestors that they've grown up with their whole lives. The Christians in Colossae feel alone in the world, rejected by the pagan Roman world, rejected by the Jews, rejected all around. And so they try their best to figure out this holiness thing for themselves. Some of the Christians in Colossae start studying the Hebrew scriptures and following Old Testament laws as part of their regular devotional life, trying Jewish-style piety on facades. Some Christians turn to the, to the spiritual practices of ancient forms of Gnosticism and mysticism, seeking visionary experiences of God. 
Some Christians turn to Eastern meditation techniques, finding space to still their soul so they can hear God's voice. Some Christians adopt a strict ascetic lifestyle following after the example of the Stoics. Denying their bodies physical pleasures like food and drink beyond what is absolutely necessary for survival. And most Christians in this whole mess, I'm sure, are just confused. Just wondering, questioning, how do we live as God's holy people in this complicated world? And we might ask, why does Paul care so much about this issue? Yeah, life, life is complicated. Why does it matter if Christians are trying out different types of spiritual devotion in their journey to serve God? What's wrong with adopting a kosher diet or practicing Sabbath or engaging in mindfulness exercises or living a minimalist lifestyle? We can look all around the world today and see Christians practicing all kinds of these things. Even in our own tradition, some of these practices. Sabbath-keeping, for example. Frugal living and generous giving of daily personal devotions have a long and rich history. Why do these things seem to bother Paul so much? Paul isn't concerned about these spiritual practices per se. But he wants the Colossians to know very clearly that they don't make anyone holy. It's not so much the practice as the attitude behind it. Fasting and devotion and Sabbath-keeping and asceticism and meditation are all great spiritual tools, but they don't make anyone holy. And Paul wants to emphasize this point really strongly. Because he's shifting, and you'll see this as we continue to walk through the letter, he's shifting here from teaching theology, teaching who God is, who Christ is, who we are as his people, to his kind of practical application part of his sermon. He's shifting from theology to ethics, to how Christians are to live in the world. And he wants the brothers and sisters in Colossae to understand without any shades of gray that only Christ has the power to make anyone holy. Submitting to the laws of the Torah, submitting to ascetic living, submitting to devotional meditation in the hope that these things will somehow make us more holy and more worthy of standing in God's presence is a dangerous thing. To Paul, it means that Christians are submitting to powers other than Christ. And so he explains the law that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. It's a shadow. It's only a shadow. Christ is the body that casts that shadow. So cling to Christ. 
these spiritual practices drawn from other religions that deny the body and claim to elevate the soul to the, the spiritual realm. It's a disembodied escape from the creation that God has made. But Christ, Christ is the embodied image of God in creation. So cling to Christ. Only Christ makes us holy. Our only hope for reconciliation with God is in Christ. In Christ, we die to the spiritual powers of this world. In Christ, we are raised to new life in the kingdom of the Son. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we are transformed. In Christ, we are united together in one body. In Christ, we are a new creation. As Paul makes this shift from theological teaching to ethical living, from what we believe about God to how we live as God's people in the world, he wants us to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing we can do to make ourselves holy. There is no created power, no human tradition, no spiritual practice in heaven or on earth that will make us worthy to stand in God's presence. In Christ, we are set free from all of that. Sinners that we are, Christ has already forgiven us. Christ has already made us holy. Christ has already reconciled us to God. And the way we live as children of God, as citizens of the kingdom of the Son, as witnesses to God's faithfulness, as ambassadors of the new creation, the way that we live, all of our words and deeds and practices and behavior flow out of our thankfulness, our gratitude, our awe for this amazing, overwhelming, indescribable gift that we have already received from God. No other name, no other philosophy, no other teaching, no other practice in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, nothing else can bring us peace with God. In Christ, we are set free from the burden of having to earn our salvation. In Christ, we are set free for life in the kingdom of the Son of God. In Christ, we find our undying hope in the one who came and is coming again. In Christ, we find our unshaking faith in the one who sets us free from our sins and opens us up to life with God in Christ, we find our unyielding love for God and the world he has made. And that's what we'll be exploring over the next couple of weeks. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said,
O Lord our God, with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength, we thank you for the incredible gift of your grace, which fills us with hope, establishes us in faith, and makes us overflow with love for all that you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for devotional and spiritual practices and habits in our lives that remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. But we also thank you that our salvation does not depend on these things. That it depends on Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would fill us always by your Holy Spirit with the assurance of this great and marvelous gift that we may live out of gratitude for everything that you have done for us as we prepare for life in the kingdom of God. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.